I love coming here. You guys are just so nice and so encouraging. I love coming into such a diverse context. I've got lots of friends here. I've just met my, my niece, um, who three mo- she's three months old. She's over in the Lee site. I've just met her, which has really actually held her for the first time, which is lovely. I just feel really at home here. Um, it's just great to be able to speak to you this morning. And as Charles said, I'm going to be continuing in the 2 Corinthians series, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. 2 Corinthians and chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, um, you either want to turn there or turn it on or something, um, and we're going to be reading it. But we will have the words up here if you don't. Um, it might be good to follow along if you can. And what we're going to be looking at this morning is the topic of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. It's the passage as Malcolm would have talked about last week if you were here then. A passage really in which Paul is trying to motivate the people in Corinth to give to the poor in, in honoring of a promise that they've already made to him about it. And there's a famine in Jerusalem. He wants them to give to it. So he's writing to really make sure that they carry through on what they said they do. And so this passage is really all about the motivation for giving. And if you, if you are not a Christian or you're newish to church, you may have come across this passage before and, you, and heard it used very badly. In fact, if you're a Christian, you might have heard it used very badly as well. I think this is one of the most abused texts in the whole Bible. It's one of the passages, in my, it's probably in my top five of passages which I've heard used to mean something that it doesn't really mean. Um, and used it often actually as a way of manipulating people into doing something that the speaker wants them to do. So, for instance, if you're not a Christian, you might have been flicking through TV channels one day and you might have seen this passage used with a speaker with a sharp suit and big hair saying to lots of people, if you give me money, God will give you lots more money. You give me a hundred pounds, God will give you a thousand pounds. You might have seen that kind of thing before. And for people I know who aren't Christians, that's sometimes a big obstacle. I think Christian preachers like me are charlatans trying to get money out of people. Um, and so it can be a, a, an obstacle for people, and it's often based on this passage. In a moment, you'll probably ring bells with some of you. and Probably a good many of you who are Christians have heard it preached that way as well. Um, and I think Paul is coming at the issue in a way to demonstrate that there are, if you like, three different motivations you can have for giving financially as a Christian, and two of them are terrible and one of them is brilliant. Right? The, the terrible ones are, you, you can be motivated to give out of guilt because you feel like you must, because you, somebody is saying you must do this and you should do this and God will not like you if you don't and your pastor will tell you to. There's a motivation from guilt. Then, and you could call that if you like the, the poverty gospel, I must give to get rid of this stuff so that I don't have any. Or you can give out of greed, which is where you're giving because you want more stuff. You're giving me, you're motivated. This will help me get more money. If I give money, God will give me more money. And you could call that, and some do, the prosperity gospel. It's the opposite, really, of the guilt motivation. It's the greed motivation. I want more things. Or, and this is what Paul thinks is so much better, or you can give out of grace. You can give motivated by grace. And the way that works is you receive the gift of God freely given to you in Jesus. And in response to his astonishing gift of grace to you, you begin to find your heart changed that you want to give astonishingly freely and abundantly to others because of the heart that's been changed by the gift God's given you. And that's a different motivation again. And you could call that just the real gospel. That's not the poverty gospel or the prosperity gospel. It's the real one. And it's a changed heart based on what Christ has done for you you begin to give that way to other people as well. As if you say, this isn't mine, and therefore I want to overflow and be abundant to others as God has been abundant to me. 
Guilt, greed, grace. And Paul says here really, don't give out of guilt and don't give out of greed. Give out of grace. I'm going to see, I'm going to try and show you why I think that's true from 2 Corinthians 9 and beginning at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us, that's Paul and the apostles, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, that is, it's not only feeding hungry and poor people, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage, but to understand it, we need to get our heads around the practice of sowing and reaping, and therefore I have brought with me a pot full of wheat. And my slightly patronizing view of South Londoners is that they have never encountered fields. So I'm going to talk, where I come from, uh, there are these things called fields, these large open spaces of earth with living things that are not humans growing in them. That's an unusual concept, I know. There's no concrete, no humans, and no traffic lights. And it must be very disorientating for those of you who've seen them to think, what on earth is this thing? It's waving in the wind, and it's this yay high, and it's yellowish. What is that? It's a thing called wheat, and they grow in fields where I live in Sussex. There's quite a lot of them. And I need just, I'm being silly, but I need to say a few things about sowing and reaping that might be very obvious to us. But actually, it's amazing how often people read passages like the one we've just read and don't notice how they're true and how they apply to money. And so here's a few things you need to know about sowing and reaping. Let's say of wheat. I'm using wheat because that's the example Paul does. He talks about bread. But it could be true of lots of things too, right? The first thing you need to know about sowing and reaping is that you sow seeds because you want a crop. You don't sow seeds because you're bored or because you're guilty or because your pastor has told you that it's a good moral thing to do and passes around the seed bucket in the middle of the farming meeting and saying, must put in your seed because otherwise you'd be a bad person. That's not the motive. Farmers don't do that. Farmers sow because they want a crop. They're very aware of what happens and they know that if they sow, crops often follow. So they sow in expectation of reward. They sow in expectation of fruitfulness. It's not the language of guilt. A farmer, if you saw him sowing, whether by hand or with machinery, a farmer wouldn't describe his motive as, well, I must, it's the sort of thing we, just, we all do as farmers, and I know it's a good thing to do, and we keep being told about it at church, so I better suppose I better sow my seed. Instead, the language is one of ambition, of reward, of fruitfulness, of hope, of purpose. Like, I'm doing this because I want to get something that flows from this. 
That's the, that's the first thing we need to know. It's the language of intention, of deliberateness, of ambition and fruitfulness. First thing we need to know. Second thing you need to know about seed is when you sow them in the ground, they die. Right? They die. And that's something Jesus makes a lot of in John's gospel, actually. When you sow a seed into the ground, it dies, and then from the dead shell comes new life. And it looks different from the thing which you sowed. And that's very important as well. If you want to hold on to the life of the seed, don't sow it. In fact, don't even take it off the wheat that it was on in the first place. That's where these come from. Don't take them off the wheat at all. Leave it there. As soon as you take it and sow it, it will die. And so if you're trying to hold on to stuff, if you're trying to hold on to the seed that you have been given, you mustn't sow it. That is not a good way to keep it. If you do, it dies. And so you've got to be aware that we are, we're dealing with a death and resurrection process here in sowing seed. That's what you do. That's the way it works. The same is true of money. If you want to hold on to the money that God's given you, do not sow it and give it away. That's not the way you achieve growth in your finances on its own. That's not the goal, actually. You know that when you sow money, it dies. It produces something better, as we'll see. But you don't sow and expect to keep it. You can't do that. That's the second thing. Third thing you need to know, you have to wait. You sow seed, it goes into the ground, and then you have to wait. And you have to wait sometimes a long time, and that is a very alien concept for most of us who live in London or Eastbourne or anywhere like that today. Because we don't live that kind of life at all. Every, I can get from here to America in six hours. If I, was to, if I was to send a message on my phone to Charles right now, it would go from me to California and back to Charles quicker than it would take me to walk to Charles and say it. That's just staggering, right? And we live in that kind of a world, and they didn't. And because of that, we live in a world where um, you used to have to cook things. And now you take your little package out of the fridge, uh, and you put it in the microwave, and you shut the door, and you wind it up to three, three minutes, and you press the on button. You go to the loo, you come back, it's not done that, and you sit there going, come on. Because we live in that kind of world, we have to be aware that conditions are thinking, and we are not used to waiting. Farming, farmers, seeds, People who live their lives with seeds and cows and wheat and fruit and vegetables, they know that you have to wait for stuff. They know that, you have, that often you will put in something and think, I, I want crops, but I'm not going to get crops for ages. I'm going to have to sit there and wait. And that can be uncomfortable for those of us who live in places like this. And there's a reason the Christian life is pictured using the language of farming, right? Evangelism, generosity, holiness, character, prayer. These things take time. They take waiting. It's not like that scene in Harry Potter where, you know, in Gringotts Vault where the thing just keeps multiplying and multiplying. So you put, drop down a seed and it turns into two seeds, ten seeds, a hundred seeds, and you've got a whole room full of seed in seconds. That's not how the gospel works. It's not how farming works either. I think that's why, why God in his wisdom came to earth in Jesus at a time when we had farming and not microwaves. Because he wanted to, but mine and many other things, he wanted to teach us this takes time. You have to wait. So you sow your money and expect an immediate return, you're being naive. You just don't understand how sowing and reaping works. Right? That's the third thing. The fourth thing to know about sowing and reaping is you cannot make crops grow, and neither can I. What you can do is faithfully sow what you've been given and trust that the giver of life and sunshine and rain will provide good gifts which will enable it to turn into fruit. But you cannot make that happen. 
If you are in the Arctic tundra, you could take the same seed and you plant it and nothing will happen because there's no sun. And then you go to the middle of the desert and you plant it and nothing will happen because there's no rain. You are reliant not just on you, the sower, and the seed, but on the gift giver who causes the sunshine and the rain to come. You are reliant, if you like, on the free gifts of God, the grace of God, to produce anything out of what you give. And it's the same with money. You give money, it is not a mechanical process in which just the very act of me giving money turns into something else. It's not like that. You are entrusting yourself to the wisdom and free grace of God to turn something good out of what you've done. That's the fourth thing. The fifth, there's six in total, right? The, the fifth thing you need to know, when you eventually harvest the crop, it is different from what you planted. You, get, right? you don't get more seeds. You plant a seed, it doesn't turn into a seed. It doesn't turn into 10 seeds. It turns into wheat, which you can then turn into flour and into bread. If you sow money, that doesn't mean you necessarily get more money. That would be to misunderstand the picture, you see? You don't sow a seed to get seed. You sow a seed because you want eventually bread. And you get, in Paul's terms, you get a harvest of righteousness. You don't sow the seed just to get lots more seeds. And it overflows, as Paul says later, in thanksgiving to God. That's the fifth thing. And then the sixth thing... The more you sow, the more you reap. Right? You sow a one or two, you might get one. You sow a whole pot like this, now you're talking. You begin to start talking flour, bread, loaves, families being fed, and so on. The more you sow, the more you reap. Right? Those are six things. That's the kind of basic things about sowing and reaping we need to know if we're going to understand what Paul is doing with this analogy. And what it means is that of those three motives for giving that I mentioned at the beginning, where you have guilt, greed, grace... These two are completely wrong-headed and misunderstand everything Paul is trying to do with this analogy. Right? We don't give out of guilt our money. And the reason we don't is because of, for the same that a farmer doesn't just give seed out of guilt. He doesn't sow seed out of guilt because he must. He gives because he wants a harvest. And we're the same with our money. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver, right? That's the language of somebody who's not giving from guilt at all. That's the language of somebody, God says, I, this should be a celebration because if you understand, just like sowing a seed should be a celebration because you sow the seed and you think, harvest comes. Now, I'm not giving out of guilt, I'm giving out of expectation, out of ambition, out of purpose and fruitfulness. We don't give out of guilt. But nor do we give out of greed because the time, and this is, so many people miss this, but the type of thing that you sow is fundamentally different from the type of thing that you reap, right? And that, that is exactly the same with money. If, I went, if I'm sowing money in expectation of more money, it means I don't understand what sowing seeds do. I do not, as I've said, sow a seed in order to get more seed. What I do is I get my seed and I might scatter my seed, right? So I'm gonna, I've got a whole handful here. I'm going to scatter my seed over people. And what do I get back? Bread! Look! Bread arrives. Wonderful. And that's what I wanted. And, and that's why I sowed the seed in the first place, right? I sowed seed because I wanted bread. If I'd wanted more seed, I would have kept it or I would have put it in some... I don't know what I would have done, but I certainly wouldn't have thrown it into the ground and let it die and then waited for ages, trusting the grace of God. Instead, I would, I would have done something completely different. The reason I sowed it is because I wanted bread. I wanted a harvest that was better and more substantial and more lasting and more useful to me than the seed that I'd sown. And that, in the same way we sow money, 
and our time and our effort and skill and so on, we sow money to produce something better than money. Right? I think you just sold so short what people are when they hear people like, I don't know, Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or Creflo Dollar or people like that on the TV saying, sow money, you'll get more money. I think you've missed the whole point of Paul's picture. You don't sow seed to get seed. That would be like a farmer at the end of the day. I have spent my day sowing seed and somebody has arrived and said, congratulations, farmer. Here is a bag of seed. He said, you fool. I didn't want seed. That's what I put it in the ground for. I wanted bread. I wanted something more. And you can sell people so short if you talk that way because people think that the goal of giving money is to get money. It's not. The goal of giving money is to get something better than money. And that's where God, God is going with this. Paul, it, Paul is, of course, is, would do exactly the same thing. If you said to him, Paul, you've given up your money now. Here is money. He would have said, what do I want that for? Like, I want, I want bread, not just seed. I wanted, if I wanted seed, I'd have kept it. I, what I want is a harvest of righteousness and thanksgiving to God and the gospel going to the ends of the earth and the poor being fed. That's what I want. That's what I gave it up for. And if, of course, if you're then able to give me more money back so I can plow that in, wonderful. But that's not what it's for. So we don't give out of guilt and we don't give out of greed. We give out of grace. We give because we know the God who sends the sun and sends the rain and the days and the seasons. And in his grace, he turns our meager little seeds into harvests of righteousness. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So let's just pause for a moment and look at the, in the second half of the passage, just what kind of harvest are we talking about then, right? Come on, I've got the analogy now, seed, bread. What's the bread for Paul? What's he actually mean? I get that the seed is the money, so what's the bread? What's he, what is the outcome, the harvest that he's looking for? Well, I think there's several things that he mentions, actually, and it, I don't even think it's a conclusive list. I don't think he's trying to say, here's all the stuff you get. I think he's just giving some examples. But let's just see what they are. There's, I've found at least five. Verse 10, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Right? Righteousness within you as a people increases as you give. That's one. Secondly, verses 11 to 12, you will be enriched in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. People who receive the benefits of your generosity, will be thankful to God on your behalf. In other words, they won't just thank you. They'll thank God for giving it to you so that, they could give it, so that you could give it to them. And that's powerful too. Thirdly, verse 12, this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but overflowing in thanksgiving. So the, the service is supplying the needs of other people who really need it. That's a third kind of re- reward that I get from sowing, is the, the joy of being able to bless somebody else so that their needs are met. And I've still got enough. Right? The fourth thing that it does, they will glorify, verse 13, they will glorify God for your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel. And what that's saying is, look, when these poor people receive money from you that overflows from your statement that you believe the gospel, they will connect your behavior of generosity with your confession of the gospel. And they'll see that the two are caused by the same thing. And they will realize, wow, the kind of gospel they're talking about, this God of free grace who gives abundantly far more than we deserve, they actually believe it. And it's probably true because look at the way it bears out in their lives. They are also acting that way, not just speaking that way. And their gift, the way they use their money reflects what they believe Jesus has done for them. They will glorify God for your submission flowing from your confession. You say it, and now I can see you really believe it because of the way you handle your money. 
And then the fifth one is verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The people to whom you are giving will find themselves praying for you because of your generosity. Now, I don't think those are the only five, but I think they're the five that Paul mentions here. And they're just examples of the kind of harvest Paul expected to reap, and expected the Corinthians to reap through their generosity. But let's take a couple of real-world examples that we have in the New Testament, and even mentioned in the Corinthian letters. Barnabas. I like Barnabas. If you know the book of Acts, you might, have, might know he's not in this passage, so if you're new to the Bible, you may not know him. But he's a, a very generous guy who early on in the days of the church sees need in the church, and he sells a field he owns and gives all the money to the apostles to use as they see fit. He gives away, not, he doesn't sow a seed. He sows a field. And what does he get back? No fields, no money, no property, a lifetime with no salary, Paul as a traveling companion, where he could be a difficult guy at times and he got you in a lot of trouble. No wife, no, none of those privileges. He lived an almost permanently uncomfortable life on the run from place to place with no salary and no property. And that's what he got back in exchange for his sowing of a field. Materially. But spiritually, what a harvest that man had. That man, Barnabas, is the guy who, when the apostle said, there's some people seem to be coming to the Lord up in Antioch, and they're not Jews. Could you go up and find out what's going on? Barnabas is the guy who not only finds out what's going on, but he's able to preach in such a way that a great many people who aren't Jewish, which I imagine most of us aren't, get led to the Lord. They get to join in God's family because of Barnabas' ministry. And he's also the guy who in Acts 13 then gets sent out on mission with Paul to take the gospel for the first time ever to cities in southern Turkey and Cyprus and goodness knows where else. He travels all over the place. There is state after state and city after city that knows what the gospel is because of Barnabas. What a harvest that guy had. He sowed a field. He didn't get back a field. He didn't get back a salary. He got those things taken away. He was materially poorer after his gift than he was before his gift. But what a harvest of righteousness he reaped in his life. Same is true for Paul, of course. It's even more true for Paul. Paul gave up his Pharisaic training, his training as a Pharisee, his religious expertise, his his status, if you like, within Judaism. And instead of being given more of those things, he spent his life being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked, hit with rods, strung up, given the 39 lashes five times. He was on the run the whole time. He never had any money. He never had anywhere to sleep. He was continually being yelled at and booed and heckled and had rocks thrown at his head. But what a harvest. The reason you and I are here, if, if you're a Christian here, the only reason that we're here is because of those two men, Paul and Barnabas. One of them left behind all their status and learning and considered them rubbish, as Paul tells us. One of them left behind their property. The two of them came together and they went on mission and every single person here who's not a Jew is in God's people indirectly because of those guys. Because they preached the gospel to people who got saved and then preached the gospel to other people who then preached the gospel. And it went on and on like that right throughout the way through until it got to you, wherever you come from. That is a harvest of righteousness. And Paul, I don't think Paul would in his wildest dreams have known that there would be two billion of us. I don't think they even had, as far as I'm aware, they didn't have a number for billion in the ancient world. They just, they just didn't think that number would ever be needed for anything. And now look at what Paul's and Barnabas' harvest has produced. And the same is true of the financial giving we give. It's always giving with a view to a future reality beyond ourselves that we may not even be able to know. And that's why it's such an abuse of chapter 9 and verse 6 to say, give us money and God will give you money. 
the harvest is far, far bigger than money. It's like the difference between that and that. So Paul is calling the Corinthians to give out of grace. And just as, here's a little side analogy. Just think about ancient religions for a moment. The, the, as far as, there's three types of ancient religion I know of in terms of why they sacrificed, right? So you have ancient religions that sacrifice because they're trying to get rid of the wrath of the angry gods, right? So the, you would find this in, in tragic examples of ancient religions where you would sacrifice even children. And the reason they do is because they're trying to say, I want to show the gods that I'm really eager for them not to be angry with me, and so I will give up what is most precious to me, even if it's my child. That's an appalling, it's an abomination. But it happened, and it's in very odd occasions still does, and it happens because people are giving, effectively out of guilt, they're giving to try and get rid of the wrath of the angry god. Right? That's giving out of guilt at its most extreme. Giving out of greed also existed in ancient religion. They were called fertility cults. I think there's a sense in which the prosperity gospel is a fertility cult. In other words, it's saying, I am sacrificing something. That's what they did. They would sacrifice to the deity in order to get the deity to send the sunshine, bring the rain, bring the crops, make their cows have calves and their milk and all that sort of stuff. I'm trying to get the, the gods to do something for me, and therefore I'm going to give in order to get them to do it. And again, that's, that's, an, that's an ancient religious approach so you have the pagan wrath gods, you have the fertility cults, but then you have Jewish Old Testament worship, which is totally different. The way that you read the Old Testament, the way that they sacrifice in the Old Testament is they, they come and they have a tent in the middle of the camp where God lives. And they say, the living God, before we did anything, redeemed us from slavery and brought us here. And he now lives among us. And because he does... I am just so overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness that I'm going to offer burnt offerings to say, thank you, God, I think you're great. That system is of a totally different nature. That is a system of sacrifice based on, really, the grace of God and certainly not on greed and certainly not on guilt. You do have guilt offerings, of course, in that system, but they are designed for very specific occasions and they're certainly not intended to just about averting wrath by sacrificing something precious. They're an act of worship to God and a very specific code is provided for them. So the people of God in, in the Old Testament are just sacrificing for a different reason than the people in other ancient religions. And there's something beautifully gospel-like about that, that we are called not to be givers out of guilt or greed, but out of grace. I, I don't give my wife birthday presents because she... Sorry, that sounded like I don't give her birthday presents. I don't give my wife birthday presents because... I have to, guilt, or because, or because I, I'm expecting her or wanting her or trying to get her to give me a birthday present six months later. I give my wife birthday presents because I recognize that I'm undeserving of her and I appreciate her and I want to honor her and say thanks to her and thank you to God for her. I give her gifts out of grace. And my bet is so do you if you're married or with relationships with people you love. That's how you communicate with them. We don't give out of guilt or out of greed. We give out of grace. That's what love does. And it's how Paul wants the Corinthians to give as well. Now we're going to close in a moment, but I just want to show you the connection, if I may, in these final few minutes between the motivation for giving. I hope we've seen the connection between farming and giving, but I want to now draw the, the third connection, which is the connection between both of those and the gospel. And I want to convince you briefly that the way that Scripture talks about giving indicates that God has built this cycle of death and resurrection and waiting and hope 
and giving up something of one level of value for something much better. He's built it not just into fields and not just even into the way we use our money. He's put it into the gospel as well. The Christian message, if you're new to Christianity, this is at the heart of the Christian message. Right? So every time you pass a field, which I know doesn't happen so often around here, but it is filled with tiny reminders, thousands of them, tiny reminders of biblical stewardship and of the gospel itself. Right? So farming with your seed is about giving something up and sort of a temporary value and letting it die and then waiting and trusting the God who raises the sun and brings rain to the land and but because you want a harvest of wheat and flour and bread. That's what farming is telling us. Finance is also about giving something up and letting it die because you trust the God who raises the humble and gives grace to the generous and you want a harvest of righteousness and thankfulness and mission. That's why I give. I give in the same spirit that a farmer plants a seed. But It is not only true of farmers and it's not only true of finances. It's also true of the gospel itself because Jesus is one who came to give himself up and being willing to die because he trusted the God who raises the dead and brings grace to the broken. And he wanted a harvest of many brothers and sisters and joy unspeakable and a people for God from every tribe and language and nation. He was motivated by the same thing that motivates the farmer and the same thing that motivates me when I give and you when you give, which is that in giving up something of temporary value, even in his case, his own life, There will be a pause and a wait, but when life breaks through in the new kind of world, it will transcend all of the things I gave up in order to get it and make it so much more worthy than anything I could have had if I'd kept it. If you give out of guilt, it's like having a message of the cross and no resurrection. If you give out of greed, it's like having a message of resurrection and no cross, no sacrifice. But if you give out of grace, it's like you have the cross and then you have the waiting. And then you have the hoping. And then the new life that bursts out of the tomb on Easter morning. Differently, unpredictably, but oh, so beautifully. What a harvest. Amen. Let me just pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing message of this gospel of a Jesus who came to die and rise. And a Jesus who doesn't just tell us to give up our lives, but has modeled it for us and lived it in every last detail. Thank you so much for the way that this community of believers has been doing that for so many years. Thank you for the grace of God upon them already, the blessings that you have given them. And I just want to pray now that you would add measures of grace to this church. You would make them con- cause them to continue to be effective. You would increase both their seed for sowing and the bread that they harvest. Lord, you would cause them to be increasingly not just generous as they already are, but also increasingly blessed with the kind of harvest you love, that they would continue impacting this community and communities that they've never even heard of in other worlds and other lands because of the grace of God that is upon them. Oh, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We love you. Amen. Amen.